Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Blue Lineage podcast series. On today's episode, we really start to get into the heart of rock and roll. Uh, In this episode, a lot of the core artists that make up really definitive rock and roll songs. At this point, we've talked about a lot of artists that had bits and pieces. Uh, Last episode, there were definitely artists that were uh, more strongly R&B and had a a rock and roll vibe. You could have considered them rock and roll, certainly. But in this episode, it's it's pretty clear cut. And as you can see, as you go through the timeline, we have pretty much a string of artists uh, for a while now. No more terminology for a little bit. So that's, uh, you know, that's what I like to get into is straight music and art. Uh, you know, there's always a little cultural and social aspects to this. But talking about the artists, um, I think it keeps things moving and can kind of connect the dots a little bit more clearly when we go from artist to artist. So on on the timeline first, we have Big Joe Turner, and Big Do- Big Joe Turner was born in Kansas City, Missouri, and he was uh, primarily a vocalist. He had a deep, cutting voice. His music was would have been considered R and B once again, uh, that kind of kind of coming from that jump blues background. But he has one of the very definitive rock and roll hits along the way. And so he's probably uh, our first real rock and roll artist uh, with his song, which we'll talk about his big hit song a little bit later. We'll get into that. Uh, But a little bit of his background. Um, There's pretty limited information on his early life, actually. One of the main... um, I guess unfortunate things really that's known about him is his father was killed in a railroad accident. So he was raised by his mother and grandmother. He grew up uh, singing in churches and street corners, uh, like a lot of the younger vocalists that we talked about who grew up in the city life. Um, one of the things about him is Big Joe Turner. His name kind of fits his image his image throughout his life. So he looked a lot older than he actually was. So even when he was young, still in his early teens, teens, he started to uh, perform in the nightclubs in Kansas City, which was, you know, provided him with a lot of early experience that a lot of people don't get. And as he performed in nightclubs, he would also uh, work, like bartend there. And apparently uh, one night he met his long collaborator, soon-to-be collaborator and long-term partner in music, Pete Johnson, who was a piano player. And so... Once that they hit it off there, they built up a reputation. They started to put a few things together. And at one point, while they were performing in the club, in a club, uh, John Hammond, who was a well-known uh, music scout and concert slash music producer, uh, he got word of Joe and 
he saw them in the club and he invited them to record in New York. And so this is around uh, 1938 and uh, early on in the, some of the early sessions, they recorded what would have, what was one of uh, Big Joe Turner's kind of signature hits, which was called Roland Pete, uh, formerly known as It's All Right, Baby. And he recorded this at the Vocalion label. They also recorded for Decca Re Records later on um, in 1941. And during this time, they were performing pretty consistently together. But once they got to Decca Records in 1941, they had been working together for a while. So the relationship kind of started to fray. Uh, they continued to perform together on and off. But, you know, that was kind of what got them both started, specifically for Big Joe Turner. And so after a while, he uh, they kind of split ways. And Joe Turner, Big Joe Turner, moved to Los Angeles uh, in the early 1940s. And he was performing around there for a while. And in 1947, he recorded My Gal's Jockey with National Records, which was really his first uh, radio hit. Um, during that time, he, he uh, in L.A., he recorded for a bunch of different labels um, all through the 1940s. And then when we hit 1950, he recorded with a young Fast Domino, who we'll talk about a little bit later in this episode. Uh, that song was called Still in the Dark. And so by this time, his career has slowed pretty significantly. One one of the things to look at with Big Joe Turner is, you know, he recorded his first hit in 1938. So that would have marked pretty early in our timeline. And just to keep track of his age, because he hits a, a hard point around, you know, the 1950s. Um, he did get a, uh, a fill-in spot with uh, Count Basie's, or, yeah, Count Basie's group, um, and that got him a contract with Atlantic Records, and Atlantic Records, um, you know, during this time was, you know, that was the place to be for what was considered R&B at the time, but a lot of the big rock and roll uh, musicians that we talk about during this era, Atlantic you know, it was huge at the time. So he got that signing with Atlantic Records and his first track, Chains of Love, got him uh, got him back on the charts and it was, it marked the beginning of the most successful recording, recording uh, period of his career. He had tracks called Sweet Sixteen, Chill Is On, Don't You Cry, and his first track to actually top the charts was Honey Hush. And then in 1953, uh, he moved to Chicago and he recorded a track with Elmer James, another uh, legend who's not on the timeline, but, uh, you know, blues, blues legend. Uh, he recorded a track called TV Mama with Elmer James. And so around this time, you know, he was still with Atlantic Records. He, he, uh, well, Jesse Stone, uh, who was a pianist, and he was also a 
prolific songwriter. He worked for Atlantic Records, and he wrote Shake, Rattle, and Roll for Joe Turner in 1954. And Jesse Stone and Big Joe Turner had already crossed paths at one point earlier in his career. And so when Jesse Stone wrote the song, you know, Big Joe Turner had a, you know, a, a big, you know, sort of voice that just cut through, through, uh, through the record or through the, um, the venue wherever it was performing, you know, he just had a, a dominant voice. And so he wrote the song with that in mind and Shake, Rattle, and Roll is, you know, pretty clearly a rock and roll song. Of course, during this time, it would have still appeared on R&B charts, but Jesse Stone, because of this, and, you know, just during that time period, you know, he had been involved in the music industry, in the music scene, as a musician also, for a while, and he had kind of been uh, working on uh, some of these building blocks that resembled early rock and roll, and Shake, Rattle, and Roll was kind of that culmination of all of that. So Jesse Stone is really credited with, um, you know, creating some of those early building blocks of rock and roll. Um, so yeah, Shake, Rattle, and Roll, a big hit. It was perfect for uh, Big Joe Turner's sort of, uh, he had this really hard jump blues style that was already kind of edging towards rock and roll, um, similar to what we looked with looked at with uh, Ruth Brown and some of her songs. You know, this is all around the 1950s, so this is where rock and roll really starts going, and you can kind of see these artists like Big Joe Turner, just uh, the natural progression between from jump blues, kind of getting that uh, harder uh, rhythm uh, matching with the vocals, and you can see how it kind of naturally progresses to what became rock and roll. And um, the song actually, um, I don't know if it was intentional uh, or sort of just coincidental or just, you know, Jesse Stone, he had a background in blues piano, as I said. So a lot of the song actually makes like kind of a lot of callbacks um, from early lines in the blue, in older blues songs. Um, you know, something to look into if you're interested, but it really kind of, you know, older blues too. So it kind of just takes some, not necessarily well-known, probably some more, I guess you could say niche songs from anywhere from country blues to some of the more uh, more mainstream-ish uh, blues songs that were from the earlier days and adds them to the song, which I think was done sort of colorfully, not, you know, in a way where they're kind of, stealing it away it was almost kind of paying homage to a certain extent although you know I don't, i'm not sure that any of those songs were necessarily like household classics so you know could have been seen as a little bit of a minor minor theft but i think it's a uh, it's pretty cool something that's interesting to look into um but the the way that the song was similar to similar to songs that we talked about before it was seen as too suggestive um and so that really reduced the radio play and it limited its 
exposure. But as I said, it was still successful. You know, it was a new song, um, a new type of song that hadn't really been heard before. But um, eventually both Bill Haley and Elvis Presley recorded versions that were, you know, radio appropriate or seen as radio appropriate, radio friendly, and they had uh, were way more successful, much more successful um, as far as, uh, you know, reception, um, listener reception and uh, radio play. So um, the success of Shake, Rattle, and Roll really continued to, um, you know, kind of fuel that resurgence of Big Joe Turner's career. And one thing to remember is, as I was talking about before, is his age. He was actually 43 in his 40s already when he released this major song. So he had, you know, had a little bit of early success, you know, not really in the mainstream, you know, had a clear slump. And then he really came back and it was really in his 40s, um, which is not not so common um, for musicians to <clears throat> have at least their really initial resurgence at this point in their life. Um, so he got uh, some films, some TV. You know, that was TV was becoming a big thing at that time, uh, including uh, a show called Showtime at the Apollo. Um, but the for at least for black artists, rock and roll was a little bit short-lived. Um, a lot of it had to do with the music phenomenon, the British invasion, which we'll talk about. It's kind of a reoccurring theme for these rock and roll guys throughout the throughout the episode. So uh, as that uh, kind of took over. He shifted to more of a performing like jazz, jazzy numbers. Um, but one note is in 1969, he did uh, they he did make an an album with with uh, T Bone Walker and Otis Spann, who are pretty big stars. Of course, T Bone Walker was featured early on the timeline, but those big three were uh, pretty big. You know, they had big. Uh, career success in their own right and so in 1969 which is you know much much later down the road past what would probably be considered the prime of their careers uh, they put together this uh, session that refers to them as the super black blues band and the title is also called the title of the album is also called super black blues and um it's a it's not um, really a commercially known album, but it's a cool album if you are into any of those artists individually, but also I think it represents the timeline pretty well because um, it encapsulates, encapsulates Big Joe Turner and T-Bone Walker and kind of shows them later in their career after they're kind of past their success, um, trying to make hits. They're, it's kind of a, almost a, a more laid back. They're kind of jamming a little bit. So it's a fun album to listen to if that's your your vibe uh, pretty you know there's some slow blues uh, I would say it's more of a slow blues type album with uh, you know all of them had a little bit of a different background so 
a lot more gets mixed in there, but I would say that the core of it is pretty pretty bluesy. And that's one of the things about the blues that I think is interesting when you think about the blues uh, versus the rock and roll era and how the rock and roll era kind of died out to a certain extent. Really, It didn't necessarily die out, but it grew into something else. And the blues you know, kind of evolved as we talked about. You know, we had the country blues, Delta blues, uh, and how it evolved into the electric blues over time. We talked about T-Bone Walker and B.B. King, and that kind of just, you know, stayed. It kept its course, and it actually experienced a revival um, around this time. And since how that kind of continues to live today, where rock and roll, you know, had its moment, um, a big, a huge moment, a very definitive moment in, you know, American history, but, you know, it didn't progress or, you know, at least for these artists who kind of made up the core of rock and roll, it kind of died out for them and continued to become something else. And of course, a lot of this has to do with crossover from the R&B charts to the rock, to the pop charts. Um, we'll talk about that a little bit later too. Um, and then in the 1980s, he kept performing, but his health was declining and he passed away in 1985. Um, so that's basically Big Joe Turner, um, big contributor to the early sound of rock and roll when we're really getting into the core of it, as we'll see with these other artists that we'll talk about. Um, next on the list is Little Richard. And so Little Richard, he's really known for his boogie-woogie-infused you know, rock and roll piano. Um, that was really his background. We talked about boogie-woogie quite a few ep episodes ago. Well, I guess there's not that many episodes at this point, but uh, probably episode two, I would imagine. It comes up when we talk about jump blues and kind of the basis of jump blues is being kind of the swing sound with a... Boogie, Boogie Woogie, which, you know, is as old as the blues. Um, it's really a type of blues, uh, piano-based. Uh, so Little Richard was from Macon, Georgia. He had 11 siblings, and his family was kind of an interesting mix, contrasting mix, I would say, of, of uh, they had contrasting mix of lifestyles, I guess you can say, because um, some of his family was very strictly religious, and his other family was bootleggers, which, you know, of course, is, was essentially a life of crime to a certain extent during those days, uh, you know, selling alcohol and whatnot when, you know, you weren't really supposed to be. I, I mean, I was supposed to day that's, you know, not really seen the same way as it was at the time, but you can see how, you know, a strict religious side would clash with uh, that sort of lifestyle. So that's kind of interesting. Uh, he learned to play piano and perform at church. That was really where he got his start in music. And Little Richard was reportedly kicked out of his house at the age of 13. Um, people mostly think that it's due to his sexuality, um, family members, or his dad. There's, you know, different 
stories. It was never really confirmed by him. Um, but he was kicked out of his house one way or another or left his house at the age of 13. And so during this time, he worked at Carnival's and he worked in vaudeville for a little bit. And he ended up being taken in by Ann and Johnny Johnson. And they ran the TikTok club in Macon. And that's where he was able to start performing, you know, on stage at least while also working at the club. So in the 1940s, he performed for a, a little bit with the Sugarfoot Sam's Minstrel Show. And, you know, we've talked about Minstrel Shows quite a bit. So I'm not going to go into the background of that. Uh, but at at one point, one of the female performers uh, was not able to show up for the show. And so Little Richard ended up uh, going out in drag as a character that was called Princess Levon. And so the success of this uh, character and persona that he developed on the show, it led him to perform at some other shows um, also in drag, different shows around the, the South, including uh, the LG Heath, LJ Heath show, uh, which had you know multiple, multiple performers in drag, which uh, is mostly just interesting because when you think about the South, outside of maybe New Orleans and Atlanta, you know, you don't necessarily associate the South with, especially during these times, with, uh, you know, having a significant uh, drag scene. Um, you know, I know mostly, I, I, I know from listening to uh, Big Fridia talk um, a little bit about the New Orleans drag scene, you know, and kind of the history there. So I know that there were definitely clearly pockets and, um, scenes uh there and I, I know there was some Atl at atlanta but i'm not sure on the history on that but i know new orleans was a big scene but um considering the time you know and considering the location it's um you know something that uh, i think stands out a little bit um but with that said you know little richard was performing doing this at, at circle circuses and minstrel shows so it's not necessarily that in all these cases or any of these cases that, you know, the portrayals of, you know, these characters or individuals was necessarily like positive or like progressive in thinking. But, it, you know, I think it's still interesting. And at one point, uh, he started to frequent um, the New Orleans clubs, New Orleans club scene including uh, Do Drop In, which was uh, one of the, Do Drop In was one of the center, centers of black music in New Orleans at the time. And the MC and host was Patsy Vidalia, who was a female impersonator, impersonator in the 1940s, late 1940s, at least at, at that club. Um, Patsy Vidalia had performed at other venues, but eventually ended up at uh, the Dude Drop Inn. And 
Patsy Fidelity was, uh, you know, if you're not familiar with female impersonator, that's kind of a, an old, outdated term that um, I don't think you hear very much. But there's a female impersonator differentiates between uh, drag or drag queen, uh, specifically at those times. Um, a lot of times the terms were used interchangeably, but female impersonator, you could specifically refer to the actual impersonation. Some of the some of um, the female impersonators really focused on specific female characters, but um, and some of the female impersonators took offense if they were called drag queens. And so that was just kind of the situation then. But Patsy Vidalia was uh, really known as a great performer and specifically had a really great showmanship. And that partially influenced Little Richard. Because if you know anything about Little Richard, Little Richard was a very, uh, very good, you know, legendary showman. Um, so that was, that was then, you know, New Orleans was a big hot spot, as I said, for the black music scene and Patsy Vidalia also hosted, uh, the, uh, annual Halloween gay ball, which was a big event at the time. And in 1951, Little Richard, uh, kind of moved on a little bit from that scene and he got a contract from RCA Records. Uh, he got it through an ad audition. Um, some say he sent in a tape. Some people say that, you know, he, it was, it's mostly a, kind of a, a consensus that he got the audition through some sort of contest or something contest-like. But he, any, either way, he uh, got a contract with RCA Records and his early recordings uh, were not really successful, but in 1955, he was performing with a New Orleans band that included uh, a few well-known musicians, Earl, Palm Earl Palmer and Lee Allen. And in 1955, he recorded Tutti Frutti, which is, you know, one of his biggest hits of, you know, his whole career. And it was really his first hit and, you know, went on to be one of his best-known songs. And the original version was really considered to be outrageous and suggestive, similar to other songs. Um, if you look at the original so lyrics of this song, I think it's a little bit more understandable considering the time period. Um, you know, but it, it, you know, it's it's definitely a theme. And in this case, it was cleaned up by a songwriter named Dorothy LeBostri, and. And uh, there's one story where Little Richard says that he was, you know, he knew that the song's content was a little bit outrageous for the time, for sure. And he actually recited the song to uh, Dorothy LeBostri looking at the wall because he was embarrassed about the song. You know, I don't know how true that was. I, I haven't seen that as a quote. So, uh, but, you know, it's one of... It's, you know, he had come up in a very uh, kind of niche club scene that was also, you know, at the core of 
black music in New Orleans and other Southern clubs uh, that were similar. So, you know, he picked up a style and a, and a language that was not, you know, necessarily something that was, you know, globally accepted, especially at that time. And so not only was uh, Tutti Frutti a big hit, but it also really showcased Little Richard's style as it became a hit and he performed it. And, you know, he had a very extravagant, uh, you know, performance style. As many of you may have seen, Little Richard, you know, often played the, the piano standing up and his whole style, his appearance, everything was very, you know, extravagant. And Tutti Frutti is another one of those songs that is considered, you know, the first rock and roll hit. And in this case, it, it's considered a early, or well, first rock and roll hit because it was not only successful on the R&B charts, but it was the first rock and roll song to cross over onto the pop charts. And one of the, and one of the first songs really, um, from what, you know, would be considered black music to cross over to the pop charts. And so that was, you know, a huge deal. And it kind of, you know, at this point, I think Tutti Frutti with, without a doubt is known as a rock and roll song, you know, shake, rattle and roll by big Joe Turner, rock and roll song, you know, but there's still that argument where you could say some of the songs that we talked about earlier, just some of the, the overall competition that, you know, people, you know, academics on one corner who have a whole list of potential first rock and roll songs or just the general music community who uh, look back at this time period, consider the rock and roll songs. But at this point, you know, with Tutti Frutti, it, it's a clear delineation when you talk about a song that sounds like rock and roll and now is, has exploded the pop charts and really shows, you know, where it show it kind of separates itself in that way. And since it crossed over to the pop charts, this is one of the one of the um, songs or time periods that's really credited with a lot more integration at uh, the, in the club scene for young people. It was briefly mentioned early on, just kind of how blues as some of the lesser known hits or not lesser known but older um, blues artists from before like Charlie Patton and some of the ones that really got some success how the white audience was already interested and you know before radio you know that the only way to really see music was to either consume it or consume it you know by buying the record or to go to the, to the club and so young people were already you know, to some degree integrating. Um, sometimes it was more just at a party scene, you know, more of a private location. But at this point, with the crossover pop charts, now everybody's listening to it on the radio, and, you know, one way or another, you have a, a wide audience who wants to see Little Richard live. And, and as I said, Little Richard, a great showman and performer. So there's a whole other aspect, you know, if you're listening to the song, rock and roll, and first hearing rock and roll, you know, it's already... A song that kind of, or a type of music that really, you know, fast, faster pace, something that you would want to dance to, and 
and so that's gonna you know of course encourage you to want to see it live so if you have the opportunity especially for young people you know they think differently it was a a big uh moment for for integration in a world that was still widely segregated especially in the south and either way you know whether it was mandated or not north or south you know during these times the there's a clear uh segregation that was just occurring in clubs in general whether it was you know sort of outright you know by legally or just um just kind of how the culture operated socially at the time so one of the the uh key aspects of tutti frutti was you know little richard had this boogie woogie style but um you know, he shifted the shifted kind of from the shuffle rhythm that was associated with jump blues and blues, you know, in general. And he kind of uh, had this driving eighth beat with his, you know, his right hand, his rhythm hand on the piano. And so that was uh, one of the key shifts and contributions to rock and roll and that rock and roll song and what really makes it clearly a rock and roll song where before as i said you, you can make an argument for songs to fit into different areas but when you're really restructuring the song in the way that little richard did you know it makes it pretty it, it's another argument to make it pretty clear cut but at this point you know there's no really ar there's no argument that tutti frutti is rock and roll it, it it's the de debate is more about the first rock and roll song so you can take you know i think on everybody's list tutti frutti is going to be the rock and roll song whether it's the first one or people are saying you know because of words people use or different aspects or you know an overdriven sound whether theirs is technically the first you know that's kind of where the debate starts um, but i think for everybody the debate either you know begins or ends with uh not ends but everyone considers to be fruity a rock and roll song is what i'm trying to say and so similar to patterns that we've talked about before in this case pat boone was the one he uh, created a watered down version that charted higher than little richards um you know as the 1950s progressed little richard went on he that was kind of his Kickstarter song, his first hit, but he, you know, just released a string of songs, um, including Long, Ta Long Tall Sally, Slip and Slide In, and Good Golly Miss Molly. He sold about 18 million singles, and I believe that was the 18 million singles, you know, rivaled, you know, pop artists, which was another, you know, it was another big uh, hallmark for his career and just the career of where black music uh, and that genre was heading. And because he crossed over in the pop charts, he got opportunities to be featured in a, a, a number of rock and roll movies, including The Girl Can't Help It and Don't Knock the Rock, you know, and and Little Richard's personality 
didn't just stay on the stage. He was known for having, you know, kind of a wilder life as, you know, anyone who's heard anything about Little Richard probably have heard stories, but he had basically had a, a wilder, you know, party life. And one note about his uh, lifestyle is that he was known to keep thousands of dollars in the trunk of his Cadillac. You know, one, I know one uh, club owner, you know, venue owner noted giving Little Richard, uh, you know, just a ton of cash at one point. And he just opened his trunk and put it in, the, in his Cadillac, which is, you know, it's an interesting way to live with uh, money. But he apparently wanted this, you know, he wanted the cash in his trunk so, you know, in case he needed it. So in that case, you can tell that he was used to spending large amounts of cash, sort of, uh, I don't want to say impulsively, but he just, he would, he would uh, spend a large amount of cash at once, you know, without really much planning is what that would suggest. So in the late 1950s, uh, his career kind of came to a halt and, you know, he is living this rock star lifestyle, you know, one of those early rock stars. And he attributed to seeing, he didn't know at the time, but he saw something fly across the sky. It turned out to be Sputnik, the satellite. And he took this, it was, he was in Australia at the time, and he took this as a sign to return to his religious roots. So he, basically the story goes, he gave his keys to, uh, his, his keys to his Cadillac to his mother, and he went back to church, and he took his first hiatus from the music scene. Uh, so, and basically during this time, he, you know, was focusing on religion, uh, Christianity, but he did record a few uh, gospel songs. So then in 1963, after he felt a resurgence of notoriety because the Beatles credited him as an influence, um, he returned to music. And one note during this time, during the resurgence, is... Jimi Hendrix joined Little Richard and the Upsetters. The Upsetters was his band. Uh, he joined them for a brief period of time, saying he wanted his guitar to sound like Little Richard's voice. And we'll get into this more on the timeline. There's a specific section that talks about uh, Jimi Hendrix playing with the Upsetters, and you know, we'll talk about it more, as I said, but it's a significant time period because the Upsetters were noted as one of the first bands to start to develop funk and this was something that was noted by James Brown who was also on the timeline we'll talk about him later on and J Jimi Hendrix was only with the band for a little bit because he basically kept stepping on Little Richard's toes figuratively uh, too many times he was you know a little bit overly flamboyant he wanted to kind of do his own thing to a certain, certain extent and you know try to Take the took the spotlight from Little Richard a, a few too many times, basically. And so with Little Richard, you know, he didn't really alter his style. If you listen to Little Richard's songs, it's pretty consistent throughout his catalog. You know, there's the gospel songs, and he collaborated with some artists a little bit later, much later in his career. And so because of that, and 
as I said, a lot of the rock and roll artists at this time, he is uh, he found himself just playing his old hits because um, that's basically what people are demanding. And so, as time went on, he uh, for years he had been used the drug use had been uh, an issue or a thing in his life, and it started to catch up on catch up to him and impact his life. And specifically following the death of his brother uh, in the late 1970s, he took another hiatus to return to and focus on Christianity. And so it wasn't until the mid-1980s where he kind of found a balance, as he would say, you know, a balance or a reconciliation between the music or you know, rock star, or, you know, music scene and Christianity. And so he returned to music again. And around this time, he was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And he really continued to perform into the 2000s. And he actually passed away pretty recently. He passed away, um, it would have been like a, almost a year from the recording of this podcast episode in uh, 2020, you know, a, a year and a week. So that's a little Richard. And as I said, you know, that's kind of the theme with a lot of these rock and roll artists where, you know, the, the genre kind of moved on without them. And they kind of get stuck in this kind of loop of just playing the same hits over and over. Uh, next on the timeline is Fats Domino. He was born Ant Antoine Domino in Crescent City, New Orleans. And he was known for pioneering the early sounds of New Orleans, R&B, and also rock and roll. And he was raised in a, a musical family. His father was a well-known violinist, and it was his brother who, his brother-in-law, who actually taught him how to play piano, which he started playing at the age of 10. He dropped out of high school at 14, and he worked in a factory during this time. And, you know, he was making enough money so he could also perform in nightclubs to uh, hone his craft. And one of his, the early interests and one of the early influences he notes is Albert Ammons, who was a well-known boogie-woogie pianist from the area. And in the 1940s, he joined the Dave Bartholomew Band, which is a, a pretty well-known band, at least um, at that time in the area. And he performed with them for a while. And then in 1949, he signed with Imperial Records. And one of his first songs was his, well, actually, actually it was his first, the first session produced one of his hit songs called The Fat Man, which it was, I think it was a first session because he had already been sort of constructing it earlier on. So it was just a matter of kind of getting it down and recorded. And this is another song that is considered to be one of the first 
rock and roll songs and a core rock and roll song. And if you listen to it, it's, uh, it's pretty clearly um, one of the first rock and roll songs. But in this case, it wasn't the same. It didn't have the same level of crossover as as uh, Little Richards did. But there were a number of these, you know, quote unquote crossover hits where basically it refers to these black artists recording rock and roll songs that you know would have been on the R&B chart that crossed over the pop charts because there was no you know it was there was no rock and roll at the time it was rock and roll you had R&B and pop and so the fat man as you may or may not recall I talked about when we talked about champion Jack Dupree because Champion Jack Dupree recorded a song called Junker Blues, and the Fat Man was based on the Junker Blues. And it was around this time where he apparently also took on the name Fats, Fats Domino as his stage name. Um... And in 1955, he recorded Ain't That a Shame, which was another hit. Uh, Pat Boone, you know, who we just talked about, he once again recorded the same song, and it actually charted number one on the pop charts, where Ain't That Shame, Ain't That Shame by uh, Fast Domino didn't make it quite so high. Uh, and this is kind of a, this is kind of a reoccurring theme as I talk about. Um, and I think it's really uh, a good example of like a, cult- a cultural appropriation. I think you know, in these days, cultural cultural appropriation comes up a lot, and you know, one of the things about this time period and music was you had uh, a lot of black artists, you know, charting high enough or being accepted socially accepted by the mainstream for the first time and you know getting a much more success than they had in the past and then uh, a reoccurring theme is uh, the white artists you know taking the songs even either covering it exactly how it was written or covering a more you know socially acceptable or radio-friendly version, and I think it's a, a really good example of, of cultural appropriation just because, you know, in this case, they're taking a song that was, you know, that was really based on the experiences, you know, the culture of the black community, and you're, you know, kind of extracting some of the, the, parts that don't fit with the mainstream community, which would be the white community in this case, and then you're taking that and releasing it and, you know, making a significant profit or success over that. And so I think it's a a pretty good definition, because I think sometimes that term might be thrown thrown around pretty liberally, but I think in this case you have a clear case where, you know, one culture is really extracting know taking something that was from one culture and really extracting and altering it so it can be more profitable and successful in another scenario and that's something that you know 
Pat Boone, in this case, has been on the list a couple times doing that. And, of course, Elvis Presley is probably the most well-known. But I think, you know, if you're going to, in Elvis Presley's case, you know, if you're going to take that approach, you know, you, you should probably be the best at it and, you know, be a great musician, you know, great artist in your own right. And I think Elvis Presley kind of gets a lot of flack because he is kind of that, you know, the figure that everyone attributes that to. Um, But I think, you know, he was so successful at doing that. I think that, you know, he, and he was, you know, he obviously got so much success from that that approach. Um, And he had his own songs. It's not like he stole everything. But I think, you know, being, you know, one of the, considered, you know, one of the kings of rock and roll and really taking it to the top, I think that Elvis Presley almost gets a pass to a certain extent because, you know, he did it. He did it uh, in a way that, you know, no one else probably could. And, you know, I think there there can be one. You know, if you're at the top, you you got to be the best. And so these other... Um, individuals you know i think you know the focus could just be more on the entire situation where we just saw this occurring you know reoccurring pattern rather than focusing on elvis presley is what i think i'm trying to get at um, because it was you know clearly a uh something that occurred over and over again and a lot of these artists you know although, although they were more successful than previous artists in the genre you know they never matched the financial or commercial success of some of these other artists and sometimes you know especially during those times uh, artists were taking the songs and you know it's not like today where you know you have youtube or all these other avenues where someone would immediately say you know this is a song that was done by somebody else or you would you know there would be a clear copyright you know flag that would pop up right away so a lot of times you have people listening to completely different radio stations and those radio stations are going to play you know songs only by those artists or uh, you know a you know a certain range of artists especially when you're talking about people taking songs from r&b charts and putting them into the pop charts it was especially damaging because a lot of radios you know played within those top 40 or just the pop chart arena so a lot of people are going to only hear this version of the song and that's what they're going to attribute the song to so they're getting you know just kind of a it's a really a big boost you know i think if you think about in today's terms it's not as you know it's not as damaging just because you know you'll hear covers here and there and one way or another you're probably going to find out you know who the original person is Usually, you know, just because of the way that music business is run now, you know, the individual is going to at least get, you know, royalties or something um, out of that. And in this case, you know, some some of the artists did get royalties, but I think that at that point, in a lot of cases, the damage had been done. And regardless, just because of the social and cultural climate, it was just a, it was a bigger deal. So I think that, like I said, I think, Elvis gets overly focused on for this for you know kind of borrowing or you know stealing t- 
taking or however you want to take it. But overall, you know, the the bottom line is it was a reoccurring pattern. And I think there's, you know, you don't want to conflate or confuse, you know, the sort of borrowing or taking of music and the influence. Because as we know, as this, as blues grew and this genre grew, you know, it influenced everybody. And, you know, rock and roll, rock, you know, the, you know, the resurgence of sort of this blues rock and what it evolved into, it was all based on and influenced by, you know, these artists on the timeline. So, you know, you, you want to make sure you separate those also because, you know, the same thing was happening within the culture, you know, from, you can see a clear evolution of blues and R&B and rock and roll as we continue to move up to other genres and they were, you know, doing the same thing to a certain extent and we had artists doing the same thing. But one of the, and one of the things, and why I think it's such a good uh, place to talk about cultural appropriation is because, you know, when you're evolving music that way and these artists are kind of, you know, because artists have copied or taken elements from music, you know, since the beginning, but there's a difference when you're kind of paying tribute or you're, you know, you're appreciating it because, you know, this individual is from your culture, you can relate to it and you're kind of taking it and applying it to your own music and, you know, or some of the later artists who may not have been in the culture who have a clear, um, who didn't take the music, but have a clear, you know, understanding and spent, you know, did their due diligence and really, uh, you know, studying the music and then taking elements and putting that into their own music. So I think it's a, I think there's, you know, some big differences in there and, you know, that should be more of the focus than kind of singling out some of these individual individual artists. Uh, Anyways, so Fat Fat Domino, he, you know, after this happened, the first time with Pat Boone, uh, the same thing that happened again with Ricky Nelson when he recorded I'm Walking. And that song really launched Ricky Nelson's career. He was like a young, kind of a sensation, teenage, you know, pop sensation at the time. And so because of this, you know, Fats Domino, he really, you know, looked at his music and tried to retool some of the songs to make it more radio friendly so he could get more uh, more co- commercial success. And you can see that because the fat man, he, you know, the version he performed originally and the version, if you see him perform it later, you can look at some of the lyrics that he changed. There was like some drug references in the original Fat Fat Man. And, you know, once again, you know, this is the cultural aspect where, you know, one culture sees this one way as being, you know, a part of the culture, whether it's good or bad, and kind of expressing that. And then, you know, this, for the mainstream, it becomes offensive, you know, especially during those times, and you retool it and kind of extract that and turn it into commercial success, which is, you know, I think it, you know, it's not, it's a little bit unfortunate. Um, but his fat, his most successful hit was Blueberry Hill, which, you know, I think for when he was kind of taking on the song, it was a conscious, um, some of that was still in his conscious as far as making commercially appeal, um, appealing commercially appealing hits 
you know, moving forward. And so Blueberry Hill, although he didn't write it, um, it was a song that was already out there, but was in a much, you know, it was completely different. It was in a different genre. Um, Louis, Louis Armstrong actually had recently recorded a version of it at the time. So, you know, Louis Armstrong, very jazz, you know, sort of more in that classical realm of music. And so Fats Domino turned it into a rock and roll song. But, you know, I think with that consciousness of keeping it as what it was to some degree to make it what turned out to be his most commercially successful song. And he had some other hits, uh, Blue Monday, Whole Lot of Loving, My Girl Josephine, Walking to New Orleans, and Let four, let the Four Winds Blow. And so, you know, in the 1960s, one note is only Elvis Presley sold more records than Fast Domino's, Fast Domino, you know, which is pretty big for an artist at that time. <clears throat> He also appeared in um, The Girl Can't Help It, which I just mentioned with with Lil Richard. Um, it was a rock and roll film. And then in the 1960s, he, uh, you know, as I've mentioned with every other artist on this timeline, well, every artist on this episode, his career started to, you know, uh, it was uh, stalemated a little bit, and he found himself just in the oldie circle, which is, what happened to a lot of the rock and roll performers. Um, but he did uh, record a successful cover of Lady Madonna in, in 1969, which is uh, a song you may not know by the Beatles, pretty famous. And it was interesting because the Beatles uh, stated, you know, originally recording it, it was uh, created out of inspiration uh, for Fast Domino and, you know, it was trying to emulate a style. So it was interesting that later on, you know, Know, Fast Domino was re-recording the song uh, to uh, and had some su success with it when it was kind of inspired by him. An interesting cycle there. <clears throat> um, and so, you know, he, yeah, other than that, he was really in the Oli circuit, you know, perf performing his hits, rock and roll hits for you know, that, that crowd. And his name really didn't resurface significantly. Um, until 2006, and it was pretty unrelated to music, but his name resurfaced in 2006 before uh, Hurricane Katrina was about to hit New Orleans um, because he refused to leave New Orleans because of his wife was uh, in bad health. So he stayed there. And at one point, you know, they were trying to find him and they couldn't find him. So they thought that maybe Fast Domino was dead. Uh, but his daughter, um, I believe, identified him in a photo or something like that. And so, you know, he was found and he was, it was pretty soon, though, after the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. And he was actually airlifted with his wife out of the area. And he actually, um, around that time, President Bush gave him a replacement National Medal of Arts because his National Medal of Arts got taken away in the flood which I mean his you know it was if he had to be airlifted obviously it was in an area where there was significant flooding so I'm assuming a lot of his stuff you know is airlifted so it's not like he was able to take his stuff out of his home so I don't know what was recovered 
but anyways, um, you know, that was kind of the way we surfaced and, you know, he continued to perform for a while in the 2000s and he actually passed out, passed away pretty recently in 2017. So that's Fats Domino. Uh, as you can see, you know, all these artists on this episode are, it's all about rock and roll, core rock and roll artists and The next artist is Bo Diddley. Uh, Bo Diddley was um, a he was originally known as Ellis Bates. He was born in Mississippi. Um, his mo his mother was a sharecropper, and she was just in her teens when he was born. And so he ended up um, um, being taken in by his cousin his mother's cousin and his mother his cousin he was actually raised with his cousin and their other you know family members um you know children um from his family who were his cousin also raised and his name he changed his name to Ellis McDaniel which was the name that he took on you know for for the rest of his life um and it was because he could so he could enter public schools um as they moved to Chicago, where he attended uh, school, and you know he was he was a famous um, blues and rock and roll guitarist. His first instrument was actually the violin. Uh, he played the violin until he was fifteen, but during that time, he also took up the drums and he also started to learn guitar and and uh, eventually in his teens he just focused on the on the guitar. And eventually he dropped out of high school and he played with his band. His band was known as the Hipsters. They also changed their name to the Langley Alley Cats at one point. And, another, and briefly in his career, just a note, he, was, he tried out or attempted to be a heavyweight boxer. Um, he's a, there's actually a couple. I know champion Jack Dupree, and I believe there is one more person on the timeline was a boxer and that was just one of those you know there were were restricted avenues for um for black people during those times to where you know you could get a job obviously and there are certain areas of success and certainly depending on your background you know your educational background it would have opened up different avenues but without especially without education um but just in general there are only a few avenues of success that really led to you know, real financial gain during those times. And, you know, boxing was one of them. And, of course, entertainment was another. Um, he also worked at a grocery store, a picture frame factory, and he was an elevator operator. And by 23... He started to play reg regularly at the 708 Club in Chicago, as among other clubs, and he became really well known in the Chicago club scene. And so, in, in 1950s, when rock and roll, you know, as we can see by some artists that we talked about, they had their first rock and roll hits. They were all in the early 1950s, mid early 1950s. So, as this rock and roll started to take off, he, you know, he saw that and tried to want to try. 
writing that type of music. And so eventually he was signed by Chess, Chess Records. And um, when he was signed with Chess Records, uh, bandmate recommended he go by the name Bo Diddley, which apparently was some kind, sometimes called as a child. And there's like a, there's an old um, rumor. Some people will say that he was named after Diddley Bo, but the, but Bo Diddley says, has said before that he didn't even know what uh, Diddley Bo was until, you know, someone brought up to him later after he had taken on the name Bo Diddley. But, um, and when we talked about Muddy Waters, we talked, I, I probably mentioned that Muddy Waters, um, one of his first instruments was the Diddley Bow. And the Diddley Bow was a, um, it was like a coarsely made string instrument um, where you basically strung metal strings um, between two objects, you know, in some cases, I think in most cases to resemble a, car, a guitar it would be a plank. So you would string, you know, two metal strings across a plank and secure them at both ends and then the plank would kind of be like a fretboard and then you could use like a slide or a glass slide whatever kind of slide to change notes um and i know robert johnson i'm not sure maybe it was robert johnson that i mentioned it with because robert johnson um he played a diddly bow but his diddly bow was actually um supposedly it was a um they were the strings were nailed in the side the outside of his house or home and so you had nailed the strings in the wall and the strings ran down and he actually supposedly secured them at the bottom you know so they'd be tight with a brick and so then he played the strings that way on the side of the house so you know there were there are many iterations there's if you look up diddly bow you can probably find more of like a formalized version but a lot of the young um blues legends or blues artists started off on a dilly blow bow because they couldn't get a guitar actually if you watch the movie um honey drippers i don't know if i've mentioned this movie before but i believe in the f in the opening scene um they are playing a diddly bow if i remember correctly um but, you know, there's various versions of this. I know Buddy Guy talks about um, his first guitar, which seems like it would have been a deadly bow. What He took the strings out of his... Um, he grew up on a sharecropping farm. He took the strings out of uh, um, the screen door. He took the wire out of the, string, the screen door and made it into what I would think would resemble a deadly bow. But either way, I think the the more likely reason that um, Bo Diddley, Diddley Bo may have came up with Bo Diddley as, as um, some of the stories suggest he was called Diddley Bo as a child. And, you know, during those times, because it was a coarse instrument, you know, kind of like, you know, you would almost think of it as like a an instrument, you know, when you couldn't afford a guitar. So later on, you know, most likely it, became it you know just became evolved in the language um you know i don't know maybe if someone a listener 
has knows the history of it, but at some point it seems like it was in a language and people were referred to as a deadly a deadly bow, um, and probably not in the probably didn't have the best connotation just because of the history of the instrument. Um, I know like one something that I read or heard um, was that it meant deadly bow meant that it was like a you know like a misbehaving child or something like that you know troublemaker. So either way, you know, he got the he took on the name Bo Diddley, and his first name his first song was also called Bo Diddley. Um, early on, as he was earlier performances, as he was uh, before he was signed, the song was called Uncle John. And Bo Diddley was a hit in 1955. On that same um, record, he, the B side was I'm a Man, um, which. Muddy Waters records as Manish Boy, which was a big hit for him. Uh, well, it was also a hit for Bo Diddley, but I think the more well-known version is Muddy Waters' Manish Boy. He continued to write hits after that um, to 1960. Um, you know, he's really well-known as, you know, he's a great guitarist. He's known as an innovative guitarist, and he was also known for his so much so much showmanship and personality he had very you know a very um, clear stage presence and you know that's a component i think of rock and roll uh you know as these rock and roll artists transitioned to something that was known in the pop charts and pop culture you saw a lot of these these guys become uh, kind of you know bigger than life personalities and you know something that in addition to their prolific playing and you know ability to, to you know just to contribute to the evolution of the genre it was also something that you know these record companies probably were looking for knowing that you know this was kind of the direction that things were going as far as having that personality to embody like what a rock star is and would become um and you know, one of his things that people remember him for is he had this uh, box-shaped guitar that he played for. It became a signature guitar. And he also, at the time, had a louder sound. And I know Muddy Waters, you know, that's something that we talked about with him is trying to, you know, have a sound that was able to hang with him and play loud and cut through the, the club atmosphere. And, and Bob Diddley actually ended up modifying his amp to his amplifier to get the sound he wanted. Um, and another aspect of Bo Diddley is he really focused on rhythm. It's kind of what set him apart. Uh, he kind of developed his own signature rhythm that became known as a diddly beat. And it resembles the beat of the clave, which is um, frequently used in uh, Caribbean music. And before that, it dates back to West Africa, uh, West African tribes. And in the U.S., that beat is known as the as a juba beat or the hambone um, beat rhythm. And so that would that beat, which would it would go on to be used in later genres, um, but it kind of became uh, it was known as, you know, kind of his signature style when you listen to his music, that rhythm. Um, and it's 
it's uh, one interesting note. I did bring that up before when we were talking about Good Rocking Tonight. So, you know, it was used in other genres, but it 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 was not necessarily, you know, all attributed to Bo Diddley. You know, this was, as I just said, you know, this has uh, roots from, it, it has the oldest roots go back to Africa and, you know, it's it found its way to the U.S. in a variety of ways. So, you know, people often refer to it as a Dilly beat, but obviously it existed, you know, already to some extent um, in music and Bo Diddley to some extent really just harnessed that and made that his signature. And so, uh, like other artists that I've talked about in this uh, episode, as the music phenomenon known as the British Invasion, I've, I've started not just to say British Invasion because I think if people don't have that history and you know, I just say British Invasion, they might not know what that means. So I refer to it now as the music phenomenon known as the British Invasion. Uh, it, the British Invasion, as I said, it contributed to uh, a blues revival, but for a, a lot of the rock and roll artists, who, you know, at the time when that happened, were really at the peak of their career. Uh, it just, it, they found themselves kind of demoted to this nostalgic sort of nostalgic, these nostalgic concert performances where they're playing their rock and roll hits over and over because that, that time period, we just saw, you know, rock and roll really evolve into something else. And these musicians didn't really change their style, even though, you know, I think Bo Diddley specifically, his style was probably, uh, his style really contributed to some of the later rock sounds. Um, if you listen to some of his songs, um, his, he has, he has like, uh, if you listen to Who Do You Love, which was, has been covered by a number of artists, I think George Thorogood and, um, which is, what is it, George Thorogood and the Destroyers? Is the name of his band? I know they. I think they probably have one of the most well-known versions. But if you listen to his version, it's almost uh, you can almost extract like this kind of punk, garage band rock sound out of it. But either way, you know he, like many others, their rock and roll careers kind of dove down, and blues kind of continued to. It's kind of revived. I know the British Invasion specifically is known as kind of this blues rock movement, where blues is really at the base of a lot of the mu- of a lot of it, and and so and a lot of these, as I just said, with the Beatles and a lot of these other artists, really called out some of their influences, and a lot of people have started to tune in to some of these older, not older blues artists. They, uh, the country blues, also had a revival, but. A lot of it was focused on the electric blues because it really uh, paired well with um, the rock music that was coming forth where rock and roll was kind of a, it was almost like a phase when you zoom out and look at it in an, its entirety. As I mentioned before, you know, blues kind of continues to extend. You can find blues artists today that are doing pretty well. You can think about like Gary Clark Jr., you know, Marcus King Band is um, pretty big. And there's a number of artists, other artists who are still, you know, making a living on that. But when you think about rock and roll, you know, there's, it's just, uh, it was, it was, um, 
more of a it's more of a period genre where people specifically reference you know you're looking for a cover by this rock and roll artist or you, for the rock and roll artists that are still around you know you can go see them and they're mostly you know performing their old hits and so it's interesting and i think it kind of goes back to what we talked about in last episode with the way r&b came into existence as far as industry you know labeling r&b rather than the artist um you know naturally naming the genre and or just saying like this is jump blues and recognizing that and jump blues of naturally as we've seen it naturally evolves into rock and roll and so i think when you extract try to extract rock and roll out of the scene it's you can see how it was just a part of that continued evolution until into other music um and into pop music you know just rock because at this point you know all of a sudden rock music is rock and roll is transforming into pop it's uh you know contributing to integrated clubs everybody's listening to it so now not only is you know the black community the primary consumer of the music but now everybody is listening to you have all these different artists covering it and so at this point you know just becomes something all together and it really just it just becomes many different genres and then the blues which is still wrapped up into this uh you know this obviously uh on the timeline it's wrapped up in this whole thing you know jump blues blues you have all these sort of coexisting genres that started from the beginning and have continued to progress um, in their own ways and one of those ways was jump blues to rock and roll and the blues continued to do its own thing and i think the fact that the blues was more of a niche genre it was you know kind of kept within the culture to some extent um you know it didn't have the same sort of pop success without you know people really referring to the blues directly and you know without people really extracting it and turning it into rock and you know later genres you know it kind of was able to continue on its own where rock and roll like i said is more of a phase and evolution if that makes sense of wherever jump blues was headed and you know it continues to evolve of course we see it later on um you see it in funk which is really the next core genre that we eventually talk about and of course we see components of it later on um in the later versions uh, reiterations of r&b where r&b becomes more what we think of today as r&b and i think that's more of the natural evolution um to where it was going to be you know rock and roll was really a huge cultural moment in american history and it's really um you know a key where we saw all of a sudden this music that was more restricted to black culture you know which was essentially labeled as r&b charts and really spill over into pop culture and just define that era and i think the success of these musicians was sort of um inflated in a way that you know they it was just it wouldn't have been sustainable for them and they kind of went away as rock and roll went away essentially or morphed or evolved however you want to phrase it 
And so that's basically uh, Bo Diddley. Um, Bo Diddley also, he passed away in, I believe, 2007. 2006 or 2007. So he's around, uh, you know, until fairly recently as well. And uh, that's that's Bo Diddley. And that is all the artists on the timeline. You know, I suspect that as we continue, uh, more and more of these artists will be people who have heard of. A none of these artists, you know, the timeline really kind of caps encapsulates some of the rock and roll artist success because um, specifically Lil Richard, you know, he has multiple songs on the timeline. And then in the next episode, we'll continue to talk about a couple more, well, I guess just one more rock and roller. And we see the shift into R&B and also we start to see the early formations of funk. Well, funk artists, not really the, we're not really getting to funk yet. And, but we get into the rock and roll and really the, the height of what I think people consider R&B, but a lot of that is encapsulated into what we, or what is known as Motown, Motown Records, which was, you know, very dominant during this next time period. Um, so we'll start to get into that uh, in the next episode. Um, I guess there's two more rock and roll artists now that I look. But it's still a little bit murky. It's always murky, as we uh, have learned. Um, you know, it's, I think one of the main takeaways is that really what was rock and roll was just a continuation of the jump blues. And we can see it kind of evolve into these other things as we move along. Um, but I guess that's it for this episode. Um, once again, thanks for tuning in. And I look forward to this next episode as we keep moving on. I think, um, you know, the history is always interesting. But, you know, the, this journey through the timeline is becomes more fascinating as we kind of things get a little bit more murky and mixed up uh, you know you can you know I think I almost enjoy the gray area more than the kind of definitive black and white where we saw early on the blues um, it was a little bit more clear-cut everything was intentionally you know separated and and um, we didn't see as much of what we're seeing now where we're seeing what we're seeing with the crossover of a lot of these stars into just mainstream culture. So we'll get into that more next episode. Thanks for listening.